This is Kari Gale. And this is Tony Critz. Welcome to the Pilgrim Lost Podcast, a space for those who wander and wonder. Hey, good morning, Tony. Hello, Kari. Happy quarantine. I know. I thought maybe we could do this actually in the same space, but we're still separate. Multnomah County here in Portland, we're still quarantined. I know. We're probably getting out and about, but... Didn't you... Didn't you... I... Don't. I thought you said that you were going to try to go. <laughs> I did. I've escaped a couple times. I crossed, crossed the river to Vancouver just so I could sit at, on a patio in the rain drinking a beer out of a real glass. Like, oh. <laughs> I was, uh, oh, but it was I'm, divine. Honestly, I'm, it was divine. I'm jealous. Even in the rain. Gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I just sat in the rain. I didn't care. It got totally cold. And it just, was all you dreamed it could be. I just <laughs> drank one boneyard IPA. It was delicious. And then you came back on over. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, and you are, um, you're kicking butt on your 100 day project. So beautiful. Well, thanks. I, you know what? I actually, just a few days ago, um, in the midst of what's going on in the world, and I decided to take my creation offline a little bit. It's actually still online. You can yeah, yeah, still, yeah. you can still go on, um, on the blog and see it, but um, not Pilgrim Lost blog, but my, my collaborator's blog. But I, I was having some, some intense sort of, I got to a place day, what was it, day, day 60 or so, where I just was feeling the motivation was for these likes and this approval. And I just got in this space where I'm, I needed to create right. outside of the spotlight. And it, yeah. spotlight, you know, whatever Instagram is, it was affecting me in a really weird way. And so at first it was for, uh, you know, accountability. And then... Because I'm creating with Christian, this my friend and collaborator, we have that accountability already built in, and so I just right. I, it didn't it didn't serve the purpose anymore. So yes, yeah, so I'm so I'm st- I'm still pounding away at it. But way way to be in touch with your internal dialogue. Thanks, Super you impressed. Know, I'm a three on the Enneagram, and how people perceive me and how they stroke my ego is right. really important to me. Wow. And I'm really trying to step away from it, and it is. It's really hard. <laughs> I'm, an, I'm an eight, so I don't care what people think. Just oh, for you. <laughs> I just want to kick the door in everywhere I go. So, all right. Hmm. Well, that's cool. Hey, we've um, we we've got we've got something special today. We do. You know, we I'm have, very excited. We I have can't a guest. Even myself. We have a guest. We have a guest. We have a guest. It is um. Husband to Kim, the beautiful Kim. Hi, Kim, if you're listening. Love you. Um, and father to six great kids. Hi, guys. Love you guys, too. And grandfather and neighbor and great friend to so many people um, all over the world, but especially here in the Portland area. Uh, he's an international speaker and writer, author of several great books, including The Lies We Believe About God, Eve, Crossroads, and a little book you might have heard of called the Shack, uh, which is also a feature film. Um, today we have William Paul Young. Hello, Paul. Hey, Tony. Hi, Kari. Uh, international means that I've spoken in Canada at least. <laughs> <laughs> and, born in Canada. And, and I'm a Canadian, so that's like going home. Yeah. How are you, sir? I'm I'm well. You know, in lockdown like everybody else, and yeah. we we do have a you know we have a daughter-in-law who is a ER nurse. And uh, uh, she and our son have three little ones, two twin, two and a half year olds and a four year old. 
So we just went through a process where uh, she was isolated and they were isolated from each other because she has to interact with uh, COVID patients. And, um, wow. and then last week, uh, Nicholas and, our, and the three grandbabies all moved in with us. So, oh, wow. So, so we now have uh, a, lot of, a lot more life around the place than we had. And then this Friday, our oldest, Chad, and his wife, Michelle, and, and their three are going to be coming down for at least a week. And they've been isolating in order to just fully engage down here. So, so that part of it is really great. But, um, you know, we've, we have a total of 12 grandchildren who are all 12 years old and under. So You have 12 now? Yeah. Yeah, and that's without Amy being married and Matthew being married. And, Holy smokes. And I know, I know. And uh, at least one of the others, maybe two, are not done yet. So, so we will. God bless you. I, wow. I yes. Obviously, God has blessed me. <laughs> obviously. And, uh, I mean, hey, grandchildren like, are a great gift. I, I want to begin our time with, with, a, with a new segment, a, a little guest lightning round. You up for a little lightning round? Fire away. Okay. Okay, so get get in the starter blocks. We're gonna we're gonna I, run through these. I, I love off the cuff, unscripted stuff. I know you do. That's why I didn't give you any like setup for our interview. <laughs> Not at all. Because I know you prefer it. You and I. That's one way you and I are the same. Yeah. I always tell people when when I go on interviews, like don't don't tell me no. At, yeah. I just ask. You want my spontaneous? Okay, so here we go. Lightning round. Paul Young, uh, favorite writer. God, that's a hard one. That's some slow lightning. Oh my, my gosh, that's a hard one. It depends on, on what I'm thinking about. So it could be Jacques Ellul, who is definitely one of my favorite writers, but is like wading through concrete, finding diamonds everywhere, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, um, you know, but I love the Inkling group. Um, right. I, I like uh, Madeline Lengel. I, oh. I, I grew up cutting my teeth on some of hers and... Um, <laughs> Um, man, that's a that's just not a fair question for me. Okay, then <laughs> let's move on to the next Moving lightning on. question. Yeah. Uh, favorite film? Man Friday. Favorite Broadway musical? This is selfish. Uh, I've only seen two, so that's kind of not a not a fair question. Okay, moving on. Podcasts? Yeah, do you regularly <laughs> listen to? Um. Uh, let's see. Um, Dark Horse, uh, the Dark Horse podcast with uh, Brett Weinstein and his wife. Yeah. Best book you've read this year? Ooh, uh, Just Mercy. Oh, yeah. Um, music you listen to when you're walking? Uh, Bruce Coburn. Mm. Favorite quote? Uh, it would have to be a George McDonald. Um, and it would be, uh, boy, which of, which of the McDonald's, um, good folks, many will one day be abhorred at what they now believe of God. Favorite thing to do on a free afternoon? Um, sit under a tin roof in a rainstorm. Favorite activity with your grandkids? Any. <laughs> Favorite global destination? New Zealand. Um, 
unlikely item you always pack when you travel? Ooh. <laughs> An unlikely item. I'm I'm pretty likely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing unlikely. I know, not particularly. All right. Um, f- uh, when on stage, your favorite topic to speak about? Um, the, the way a uh, wholeness and, and the process story storytelling is my favorite thing. One project you are currently working on? Um, <clears throat> major motion picture for Eve. Oh, you are good. Good. I know it got picked up, but um, are, are you in script phase or? Yep. We've got the first full draft of the script. And, uh, and then we're also working on a webcast series, which could turn into a syndicated show as well. One activity that helps you stay centered. Playing with my grandkids. One practice you have to help stay physically healthy. I exercise, you know, one of these on, you know, on your app things. All, pretty much every morning. One practice to nurture your creative side. Conversations with friends. Beautiful. Thus endeth the lightning round. <laughs> yeah, I stuttered a little bit, but hey, you know what? No, you're great. Hey, you, you pulled out a quote. Like, that's amazing that you could remember your quote and just. Yeah. yeah. I also want to. souls to- many will one day be abhorred. Not, the word's not abhorred, though, in the quote. I got that wrong. Will one day be. It's just like, oh, I can't believe I used to think that about the character and nature of God. Yeah. Mm. I did want to say, Paul, that I live in a tiny house with a tin roof, so I get to listen to the rain. Every time it rains, I get that sound. It's so beautiful. It's, it's my safe place. And, yeah. and it's because, huh, crazy reason, but not a crazy reason, but an unusual one, I suppose. Um, I grew up in the highlands of New Guinea. I'm a missionary kid. And yeah. so I grew up uh, in monsoon season. It was just crushing uh, rain, you know, during, during certain parts of the day. We were in the highlands and, and, and the first real house that we had, we, we moved there when I was one year old. So that was my entire world. And, um, and the first house, the first real house we had was completely made out of aluminum that was um, screwed and bolted onto wood frame. Um, the, the, the little shack we lived in before that actually was one room where the entire wall would come down during the day because the, we were the first into that entire area and the tribal people were very, very much animists. They were spirit worshipers. And, um, and if, we'd had, if we'd have been behind a closed wall during the day and they couldn't see us, the likelihood is that they'd have just burned us alive inside of it because, you know, we would be doing something to harm them that they couldn't see. So they had to see everything. And then, so the first real house, which was about, I don't know, four years after we got there, three years after we got there, but it was all aluminum. And, um, and my dad was a, you know, he was a young man, um, angry young man, um, had been orphaned at 12, worked in, worked in um, logging camps from 14 to 18, had a massive encounter with Jesus because of two of his sisters, and walked out of the logging camps at 18 and into Bible school where he met my mom. They got married, and we ended up in New Guinea, you know, a year and a half later. So, so it's not like he was prepared to be a dad. He was a hunter-trapper growing up. Um, 
and uh, and he was he didn't know what to do with his fury other than um, he was an abusive disciplinarian. So when the rain hit and it would hit on the tin roof, it was so loud that I couldn't hear him and I couldn't make a mistake, hmm. right? And, um, and so that became my safe place and it always hmm. has. Even if I'm in a car now and the rain comes down like that, um, I just go electric. Even outside this little room here, we have a tin roof built specifically so I can sit right out here and when rain comes crashing down. Wow. And it just, if there's anything in my life that feels like the tangible embrace of divine intelligence, of divine love, it's sitting inside of that. So it's a very, very meaningful little piece for me. Wow, thank you for sharing that. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, that's a new piece for me. Mm -hmm. uh, Paul, you, you and I have known each other for probably 15 years. Um, this, this podcast, uh, so Kari and I have known each other over 20 years. I'm, she's one of Amy's best friends. And um, we go back to when I first moved back to the States from being a missionary overseas. And um, one so of the things- owners since she was like 12, right? Exactly. Ex yes, 12, we were really young. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things that's been really meaningful to both of our lives, we've both walked the Community de Santiago. Across oh wow! And um, Kari's actually done like four or five pilgrimages around the world, Iona, and one across Peru, and some different places. And um, so, and it's uh, we've really shared a lot of conversation about it and why those experiences are so powerful. You know, just the the act of walking every day and um, and having that 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 rhythm and that practice. So much so that that we started this podcast because we're like, boy. There's something wrong. There's something wrong if you have to go to Spain to have those experiences. Right. Because if those experiences are truly transformative, they must be inherently human. If they're inherently human, then they, then they can't require privilege. Yeah, I follow that. Okay. Yep. So we're like, so let's, let's spend some time kind of exploring whether or not we can be a, have that same pilgrim experience in the, in the everyday, in the typical in the day in and day out 40 day week of work and all that is there is there a way to, to to be a pilgrim to experience the pilgrim life and then you wrote the shack and um eugene peterson who's probably one of the most influential spiritual writers of the last 50 years referred to the shack as this generation's pilgrim's progress in reference to the um the famous book so here, your, your work's being compared to Pilgrim's Progress. We're doing a podcast about pilgriming. And I just, honestly, I just wanted to get your take. Like, what do you think about the, the metaphor of being a pilgrim or why is being a pilgrim important? What's the impact? What's the significance of it? And then I just want to talk about moving towards wholeness. Okay, cool. So, so Kari, let me ask you a question. Yeah. You've done multiple walking pilgrimages. Talk to me about how time changes for you as you do that? Oh, it's, that's one of the things that has been so profound for me coming out of those pilgrimages is the slowing down of time. And the, the interestingly enough, it's this, it's this dichotomy that time slows down, but then it becomes like 
expense. The moment's expansive. It, it grows. It slows and it grows. And the vibrancy of those moments becomes mm-hmm. um, something that I never experienced before. Like I never, I, I, I've told Tony this and I have said this on the podcast prior, but it was, it was those, that slowing down and then expansiveness that made me feel as I, you know, walked however many miles, 15 miles in the day that walking from point A to point B, I felt more satisfied with just the walking and the being in that space than I had done in any other space in my life. Any other accomplishment, I felt more, um, as we talking about, I felt more whole at the end of the day. And that wholeness was what really brought me back to this idea of like, how do we, how do we engage in this? Not just on the, on the, on that pilgrimage path. Yeah, that's beautiful. So talk to me about the issue of control. (sighs) Of control. Yeah. When, as, as the difference between when you're on a pilgrimage and the questions about control in your life versus when you're back to this world and the questions about control in your life. Mm. Well, honestly, there was the reason why I was on the pilgrimage was because I had lost complete control of my life. My, I had gone through a, a really tough divorce that was not my choosing and, and my life had imploded. And mm-hmm. so I ended up on this pilgrimage path and, and the idea that in many ways, I think it was almost like all these different things that I was trying to control had fallen away. They sort of, they sort of just, it was almost like if you imagine um, a dial on a radio and there's all these things that you're trying to maintain. And it was almost like they all started turning down. And then the things that were really important to think about rose to the top. So I didn't have to control anything. All I had to do was walk. And that was so freeing. Like it was, I mean, so many people that I talked to, and I think Tony would, would agree with this. You get to the end of the pilgrimage and there's this lightness of being people want to just do it for the rest of their lives. They keep going back because that lightness and that freedom of letting go of the things that really don't matter are, are, um, it just changes you. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, my learning how to walk, um, started by the same thing, the complete loss of any sense of control. And, um, my sense is that, that fear will move us in one of two directions. One is trust and the other is control. And for those of us who come from broken histories, trust is really not an option until we have, until there is no other option. You know, we will find a way to control. And um, so when you deal with fear in your life, you're going to choose control or a form of control or an imagination or an illusion of control, but you're not going to take the risk of trust, not until things really break down. And, and for me, that happened at 38. Um, um, we had, uh, Matthew had been born for, and he was a, less than a year old. And, and so he's our sixth child. And, uh, and Kim caught me in a three-month affair with one of her best friends. And at that point, everything that I thought I knew that was true disintegrated, including all the facades that I had created to try to gain some sense of control. And that pushed me into an 11-year deconstruction rebuilding journey. 
it took Kim and I 11 years to heal um, in terms of reconciliation. Forgiveness is one thing. That's where you, you no longer allow an event or a person to continue to own your life. It's for the sake of the victim. Reconciliation, when it happens, is a miracle, and it's for the sake of the perpetrator. And uh, it's the rebuilding of trust. And it took Kim and I 11 years to rebuild trust. But when everything came crashing down, so did all my self-protective systems and all my ways of control. And, uh, and I was, in a, in a sense, almost forced. The, the one element of control that I, that I was an option right at that time and was an option for a couple times within the first year was to simply kill myself. It was, it was a way to, to have a sense of one last point of control where I didn't have to face all the stuff that I had to face because it was really hard. And when, when all of that blew up, um, it was the exposure of facade and secrets. None of, you know, Kim didn't know anything about the child abuse in my life that had happened. And she didn't, I mean, I, I, I'd never let anybody in. And um, when I went through that journey, I had to make a decision whether I was, I was done with secrets or not. And I, I made the decision that I was done with secrets because they'd been killing me my whole life. Hmm. And secrets had given me a real, real hidden place of a sense of control. You know, and uh, that's the, actually, that's the metaphor behind the shack. It's the house on the inside. It's the broken heart. It's the broken soul of a human being, the house that people helped us build. Great if we got good help. A lot of us didn't. And um, so it becomes a place where we never invite anybody because we're terrified they will hate us as much as we do. And um, when that all exploded, Kim's dad lived with us. He'd lived with us, he lived with us for 17 years. And, uh, and he was the first person that I had to, to then tell that night, you know. And um, even in my uh, confession stage, which took four days, it took four days to tell Kim everything she didn't know. And, um, and she wanted to know every detail about everything. And I told her everything. So that started this whole thing. And then, you know, I'm the one that told, our two oldest kids went through uh, all of this with us at the time because they were old enough. But I told Kim's family. I told my family. I told our friends. I told, I mean, it was just excruciatingly, I'd say humiliating, but, but that's not right because humiliation is so linked to shame. It was incredibly exposing and humbling but it was really really hard and uh it was hard 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 for the first two years but one of the things that happened that i hadn't anticipated because um, i it had never even been broached to me except through kind of the mystic writings that i had um read over over the years but i didn't know how to take any of that and actually bring it into my real life but one of the things that happened is that I was forced to live inside what I call the grace of one day, period. That my whole universe shrunk to what was actually in front of me this one day because I had no capacity to deal with more than what this day held. 
And as long as I stayed inside the grace of the day, I found that I had enough. It's when I started to try to what I call future trip, create imaginations that don't exist, even conversations that don't exist, right? And what happened was, is during those 11 years, I actually developed the walk of a pilgrim. That mm -hmm. is exactly the things that you were talking about in terms of suddenly time slows down and becomes expansive because you're actually present to it. Most of us are never present. Hmm. We're, we're not actually present. And this is the thing about when you go on a pilgrimage, you want your inability to be present to be shattered so that you can then begin to be a life of present, uh, a life in which you're present. And I think that's the key point here. And, and you don't have to go to Spain to do this, you know, but it's again, what you've got to face are your control issues, which are founded in the deepest fears of what it means to be you and what it means to be a human being. So fear is what's, what's really behind our inability to be present. Because if you don't trust anybody, then all you've got is your own resources. And one of the greatest resources you have is to create imaginations that don't exist. And we do it all the time. You know, every crisis is an invitation to leave the presence and the present and, and go somewhere that doesn't exist. And then try to utilize all your emotional capacity to solve problems that don't exist in an imagination that doesn't exist about a reality that doesn't, it's not real at all, an illusion, and you get absolutely exhausted by trying to control your universe so that the things you're afraid of don't happen. And, and I think that is precisely the opposite of what a pilgrim does. A pilgrim has learned to be the child again. And children by nature stay inside the grace of one day until they are forced to leave it. It's a child will trust by nature until trust becomes dangerous. Hmm. And so my response to all of that is I live a life mostly in the grace of one day. And, and that's, where I, that's where I function. As a result, I get to see things that other people miss because they're not present. You know, I was having a, uh, this kind of a conversation came up and um, it was profound. It was one of those moments. And one of the reasons that I think um, Tony and I like in the moment conversations because it gives space for for, for us, because, you know, we both have a very deep sense of relationship with God, you know, the, the divine love, divine nature. And for us, we come from a tradition, and mine is very Trinitarian, and which I love. I absolutely adore the idea of one, the oneness of God and three persons who have always been in a relationship of other-centered, self-giving love. I love that. And I, I think that there is nothing I have ever found, not in philosophy and not in psychology, not in other religions. Actually, I'm not going to say in other religions because this is not a religion for me. This is a relationship. So, and relationship is always a violation of re religion as far as I'm concerned. So, um, but, but within that context, 
presence is really, really remarkable. So last year I was over in um, uh, Sun River and I was invited by, you know, this beautiful little group of gray hair folks who are, you know, kind of retiring over there. And they had a little uh, community church. And, and so they asked me to come talk about the shack. And during the question response time, one of the guys at the back, and this, again, here's a, another good reason I love Q&R. He goes, so there's this Irish proverb I'd like you to, to comment about, you know? And I was like, great, Irish proverb, sir. And, and he goes, it goes like this. When you die, the only thing that will have mattered is if you had impact. What do you think about that? And it's, it's one of those moments where thankfully you don't think about your response before you participate. And I, and I really do believe that the, that the entwining presence of God in every human being's life allows us to participate in moments where we get to say things that are so profound, we're blown away ourselves. Yeah. Um, and I think every human has experienced that. Somebody has come to talk to you because they're in a crisis and, and out of your mouth comes this absolutely. And at that moment, you're thinking, that person right now thinks I'm the, like the brightest person on the planet. And in that <laughs> moment, you are. I mean, it's just stunning. And, uh, but you're thinking, oh, I got to remember this because it's so good. So he, he says that. What do you think about this? And before I could even think, out of my mouth comes, you know, I've never heard a child say anything like that. I guess you have to become an adult to say something like that. Children assume presence is impact. Mm. And I went, shit, that is so stinking good, you know? Children assume presence is impact. Mm. And I'm just like blown away by that. And I'm like, and he was too. He's like, oh, that's, that's perfect, you know? And it's like, yes, presence. And this is why a child has such power in our world, because we who can't stay present are drawn or invited into presence by a child, because this is their world, right? And um, so, you know, at the beginning of every year, I, sort of get, I, I usually get a word for the year. Uh, and I got a whole phrase this year. It's kind of like, you know, special year 2020. Oh, yeah, it turned out to be. And, uh, <laughs> And then, so I got a phrase, but I also got a scripture from the New Testament, which hasn't happened in decades. And I, I think, I think in, the, in the Trinity, they have a conversation about me that goes like this. Yeah, let's not give him a scripture. He gets so triggered, you know? Uh, because I'm a missionary kid, preacher's kid. I, I know how the Bible has beaten up so many people, right. right? And so I'm like, no. But I got one this year. I mean, it's been decades since I got a scripture, you know? So... My phrase for the year, for 2020, at the very beginning, before pandemic, before George Floyd, before Brianna, before all this, my phrase was, trust the ripples. Trust the ripples. And, and that to me meant, don't be making your decisions based on outcomes. Participate in the grace of the day in any way that's actually in front of you, and then trust the ripples. Trust mm -hmm. the ripples, okay? And the verse was out of, out of uh, the epistle, the letter to the Hebrews, uh, the, the spread around Jewish community that had become followers of Jesus. And it goes like this. Encourage, 
add courage to one another as long as it is about today. And the word in, in the uh, today in the Greek is emphatic. So in the translation that I was reading into English, the, the word today is all in caps. So encourage one another as long as it is about today so that you are not swept away by the deceitfulness of brokenness. That's Hebrews 3.13. And, and to me, that's stunning. It's like, all right, you know, draws me back to today. I am, in, I am face to face with you today. How can I add courage about things that are happening in your world as long as it's about today? Not about future tripping reality. We don't have any control, right? Control is a complete myth. And it's like, ah, let's, let's learn how to be present. And it's in that presence where you experience the constant companionship of joy. And joy is not happiness. Happiness is the old English word that comes from luck. So if you're unhappy, you're unlucky. If you're happy, you were lucky. And so it's all circumstantially based. Joy is this underlying river of the sense of being in a relentless embrace of affection. And it's impervious to circumstance, even in the midst of really tragic things, which we have experienced. Mm-hmm. There is this underlying river, but it only, you only intersect it when you're present to it. If you're running away into future tripping fear-based imaginations, you don't sense the presence of joy. So joy becomes one of those touch points. It's like, can I touch joy? And when you were, Kari, to go back to, to ask you a question, when you were walking that road in Spain or one of the other ones that you did, were you not overwhelmed by the increasing sense of the companionship of joy? 100%. 100%. And the, the, I mean, I can literally, as you were talking, I was going back to this one particular spot on this hillside where, you know, I would, I would literally stop and just breathe in this, this, it was, it was almost this palpable, tangible essence of joy that I had not experienced. And it was, it was so unexpected also because I had just, you know, the, 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 perhaps I, I think perhaps I, I maybe lessened it in my mind because of the juxtaposition of the grief I had gone through. But what was so strange is I was carrying both those things at the same time. Yes. And I was, I would have a morning where I would be weeping. And then in the next moment, I could have such unimaginable joy and still be grieving. It was, it was for me, it was this, the first time I had sort of observed myself carrying both of those things. And it felt, but it felt both, both things felt completely authentic. They were not, you know, the joy was not manufactured because we've all manufactured happiness in order to get through, right? Right. And, and, but, and this is me alone on a path with no one around me. So there wasn't, I wasn't doing it for anyone. That's so it was, beautiful. And it's so true. So, and it's just saying in the presence, in the present is fullness of joy. And, and the year that I turned 50, which was the end of the 11 years, one of the big realizations for me is that joy had become a constant companion. And I was thinking like, what? Joy never spent the night. What's going on? 
And I, I actually didn't tell anybody for like six months because I was afraid that as soon as I said something, you know, <laughs> she'd be gone. And, uh, and, and finally I told Thad Hendrickson, I don't know if you know Thad, he's a, he's an artist here in Portland and he's a buddy of mine, younger guy. And he goes, so what changed? And I went, what did change? Oh my gosh. This is when I really began to live inside the grace of one day as a consistent not a practice, just as a way of being. And, and since that has happened, I don't want to leave it. And one of the beautiful things about my grandkids is they are a constant reminder and invitation to be present. And um, so, yeah, well, and it's not, what, I'm not perfect at it, but I'm, I'm way better at it than I used to be. What turns something from a practice into a way of being? Or are they two completely separate things? No, no, no. I think a lot of us have to practice something in order for it to become a way of being. Um, just because it has to get integrated through the web of our existing illusions and, and, and lies and things like that. Right. So there, a, a practice begins to help dismantle things. So the problem is, I think, and I've seen it um, in uh, where suddenly the practice becomes the focal point. Mm-hmm. So the, the practice, the, you know, the, it's kind of like the, the law in the scripture, right? The Mosaic law. The Mosaic law was not the goal. In fact, the law existed to try to prevent wanton damage of human beings against each other. And so it was, it was a symbol of what love could look like. But the intent of it was to be transcended so that it wouldn't become a practice of law. And if you got stuck as a practice of law, you ended up becoming a law-giving, self-righteous judge of people, right? Because you were at least better at it than some people, or at least you hit it better. So, so but the goal was to, that it would be transcended to become a way of being, that, that what was written on stone would be written on human heart, right? A heart of flesh, right? So, so the practice was there as, um, as, as a way of moving in that direction, but the intent was always to be transcended so that it became a way of being. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and I think a lot of, you know, people ask me, do you have any spiritual disciplines? And I go like, yeah, one, staying inside the grace of one day. That's it. You know, everything. And I love doing the stuff, you know, I love walking the mazes and when when i'm around people who who love that kind of stuff oh yeah i i absolutely enjoy it and i get stuff out of it but i don't you know i've never been good at spiritual disciplines it's just not wired in me very well and um and you know it's always been a little bit of an antagonism too because of the way that i grew up but um but again when it the the practice becomes it becomes um assimilated or actually maybe maybe the practice begins to uncover the truth that's been there the whole time that has been impeded by other things and the practice allows you then to access it so your practice of these pilgrimages then opens up the truth that you have a capacity and have always had a capacity to do this inside of your everyday life and in, in the restrictive circumstances of life, whatever. I always, I always tell people that if 
truth, if what we're believing, and I'm, and, and I'm going to move away from believing here to trusting, if what we are trusting is real, it's got to work for children, and it's got to work for first century slaves, which are in the most coerced situation ever, right? So it's got to work under coercive circumstances. In other words, if joy is real, it has to be presence in the midst of a coercive, restricted life, mm-hmm. circumstantially, right? So your freedom is not dependent on what's going on out here. It's something that is true from the inside out. Uh, it's like you don't have to go to a building or through a temple or a ritual in order to access God. Right. If God is real, then the presence of God has to be real in whatever circumstance you find yourself, regardless of how restricted it is. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Paul, um, so when, when I walked the Camino, it was soon after my mother's death. Mm. And the last couple of years in particular of my mother's life was really shaming. Of, she shamed me a lot. Um, is this a couple of years ago? How long ago was this? This was five years ago she died. Five years ago. And okay. um, two, uh, three years ago, I walked the Camino. Gotcha, gotcha. I thought, I thought there was a connection because my mom passed about the same time you walked the Camino. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, a lot of my while, a lot of that sort of being present to it was being present to those messages and trying to wow um, reconcile to my mom, even though she was gone. Um, and Kari's already talked about grief and her grief in walking. And I just think right now our country is in a massive state of grief, um, witnessing unconscionable acts of violence and loss and um this whole grieving process is I'm not completely sure even what I'm asking, but is it just, is it just necessary? It's just part of being under the sun. Like there's just absolutely around it. And And we don't know how to do it very well. Can you talk about that? Oh my gosh. So, you know, I, I wrote a prayer for the pandemic. I was asked to write a prayer for the pandemic. And uh, um, a few years ago, I wrote uh, a lament and and part of it was, is that in the West, in, in civilized society, we've so disengaged our heads from our hearts that, that we don't know how, how to integrate the two of them. And grief will do that. Grief will crash, right? You know, grief and wonder and, and kindness even. You know, when, you're, when you watch something on a social media platform, and there is an expression of kindness. It has a way of penetrating past the watchful dragons of your intellectual um, distancing, you know. And um, and so uh, grief. We we have often given grief a six week period, you know, right? Like like you're allowed to do this, and it's just not how it works. Um, in fact, the more whole you become, the more you are um, vulnerable to the presence of, of sadness and loss. And, and we have to find ways uh, to learn how to not just on, only access it, but express it and express it inside of community. You know, and when you begin to, to do that, 
all of a sudden all kinds of walls come down. So yeah, I mean, suffering isn't absolutely necessary for the human experience. But in this world that has been broken from the core, you're not going to evade it. I mean, it's just, it's built in. And, and, um, and it's not because this is, there's a God who is judging the human race and inflicting suffering. There was no suffering for, going back to, to my frame of reference, which is this three persons in unadulterated affection, one for the other in mutuality of face-to-face relationship, other-centered self-giving love. There's no suffering in that. We as human beings, because we have such momentous ability to create damage and to say no, you know, how, how do you have love? How does a creator create a universe in which love is possible without, without those who are in that creation? They must have the power to say no to love in order for love to even exist. Right. And then what do you do? If, if you create a universe in which the creation can say no, and then you take away the consequences of that no, then you've denied the power of that no to begin with. And therefore the yes won't matter either. Right? So here we are building our own house of cards, looking for scapegoats, rather than acknowledging that we as human beings are powerful. We actually matter. Every human being actually matters. And their choices ripple into the cosmos. And, and we're in the backwash of it. And so part of, part of what is happening is for us to learn how to embrace the fact that we have, we have done this to each other. You know? And we have... We are the perpetrators as well as the victims. I know I am, right? I have. I've hurt people. Mm-hmm. And oh, here's an interesting thing too about grief. A lot of us have regrets. I've got huge regrets. I hurt people. I am still not reconciled to some of the people I hurt almost 30 years ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some of them are absolutely dear and precious to me. I'm still not reconciled to them. Because I'm not, you know, I can, I can do the pieces that I can do, but I have, to, I have to wait, right? So what do you do with regret? Because a, a lot of us, we don't deal with regret because it's synonymous with shame, right? And let's get guilt and shame distinguished really clearly. Guilt is in the realm of behavior. That is, I've done something wrong. Right. I've done something hurtful. Shame is in the realm of ontology or being. I am something wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Two completely different things. So most of us think that, reg- well, and regret just says, see, you are a piece of crap, you know? That's, but I've learned to live with regret as part of grieving, part of embracing loss. And like any grief, it comes through in waves. And when it comes through, oh, you asked me what my favorite movie was. And I told you a movie that you probably never heard of. Yeah. It's, it's an old movie and it's called A uh, Man Friday. And it's 
with Richard Roundtree, who plays Friday, and Peter O'Toole, who plays uh, Robinson Crusoe. And the first scene, it opens up with Caruso sitting on the beach reading from a King James Bible. And he's reading Genesis. And he's reading, and God gave man, male and female, right, dominion. So they could subdue the earth. And the, and the King James language is very, very strong, powerful, you know, like subdue. And he's like, yes, dominion and to subdue. And, and about that time, there'd been a big storm and he'd gone down to the beach to, to do something. And he was reading his Bible for his morning devotions. And, and, and a boat got swept onto the beach with um, five um, island people in the boat from, a, from the same tribe. And they got caught in the storm. One of their members had died. And in the tradition of that tribe, they're going to have a ceremony and, and partake of, you know, basically have a communion service with this brother's body, right? They're going to consume him as part of their tribal culture of taking that person into themselves, yeah? And uh, cannibalism, where I grew up in Cannibal Valley. So, you know, uh, I, under, I understand this in a way that a lot of, a lot of Westerners don't. But, but um, I never participated, just so you know. And, uh, um, but Thanks for clarifying. Thank you, yeah. I have a really bad joke I could say right now, but I'm not going to. And um, <laughs> uh, so uh, Robinson, as they're preparing to cook this guy, the dead, the dead brother, Robinson comes across that and he is outraged and he's got his guns and everything. He starts running down the beach, yelling savages, savages, whatever, whatever. And, and he starts shooting and, and uh, Richard Roundtree Friday um, realizes the, the scenario. So he quickly finds some vine and ties himself up as if he is a captive and about to be the next victim. And Robinson kills everybody else except him. Hmm. And, and then rescues him as the white savior, right? Who's going to rescue this, this man from his uh, ideological darkness, right? So he is now going to rescue him. And the rest of the movie is Peter O'Toole trying to, trying to change Richard Roundtree into becoming a civilized human being. And Richard Roundtree, Friday, trying to help Caruso access his humanity. And it's a fantastic interplay. But the, but the reason that he even brought it up is that there is this scene. And, and uh, Robinson Crusoe has taught Friday how to speak English. By this time, he works for money and coins, you know, and he's taught him how to, to work a money system and how he needs to work for money. And, and uh, I mean, the whole thing's just wild and crazy. Quite appropriate to some of the conversations going on. And, um, but one day, Friday doesn't show up for work. And by this time, even as Robinson Crusoe has tried to maintain the, the proper distance of, of, of disassociation, right? A relationship has started to percolate, even if Robinson's not looking for it or doesn't recognize it. And so he's concerned about where, where Friday is, and he goes looking for him, and he finds him on the edge of a hill. And Friday is looking down over the ocean, just sitting there. And Robinson comes up and goes, what are you doing? 
and Friday goes, oh, Robinson says, you need to come work. I'm not working today. What do you mean you're not working today? You know, it's presumption against authority. No, I don't work on this day. And then you go, well, why not? He said, this is sorrow day. Hmm. And Robinson goes, sorrow day? What's sorrow day? And Friday looks at him and says, you don't have sorrow day? You don't have a day that you just set apart and you go somewhere and you think about all the people that you've lost and all the people that you miss and all the ways that that you hurt people and and you just allow the sorrow to come and be your companion for a day you don't you don't do that and robinson goes no so well i'll do it with you right so he sits down and this is the first time in the movie where you see him and O'Toole is such a good actor, and he's sitting there next to, to Richard Roundtree, who is obviously inside Sorrow Day, but you begin to see it rising inside Robinson Crusoe, something that he has absolutely compartmentalized in his own personhood. And you begin to see, he's starting to think about his wife, and he's starting to think about his children, and he's starting to think about England, and he's starting to think about where he's been and what he's lost. And it begins to rise up inside him, and you can see the tears start to trickle down. And he doesn't know what to do with it. So what he does is he, he, he turns into a raging fury, and he begins to, to beat Friday and tell him he's such a devil and how could he do that? How could he how could he tempt him like this? And he just beats the crap out of out of Friday in response to his own inability to deal with the sorrow and the fury and the rage that's in his own heart. Hmm. Does that not resonate with so much of what we see? We see fear emerging and hiding itself in retributive fury and it doesn't mean that the losses aren't real and it doesn't mean that the injustices are somehow justifiable they're not they're wrong but what we've got to do is learn how to mourn together as community that crosses all barriers that we have created and exist as an expression of being human you know, weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice. But there's a lot of weeping that needs to take place. I feel it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think in the West, a lot of times we've decompartmentalized everything. I think that's part of the, the whiteness culture that absolutely exists, that we've participated in, the three of us have participated in. Mm-hmm. I'm not a racist. I can, I can absolutely declare to you that I'm not a racist. But I have been absolutely influenced by whiteness, mm-hmm. you know, and so and 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 have I succumbed to it? Have I uh, been part of the problem? I'm sure, but I've been a part of lots of problems, you know, as well. 
and and the ability to mourn the ability to see and the ability to that happens inside my relationships that are face to face and i guess that's the other part of bringing these two parts of the conversation together is we can become so crisis fatigued and compassion fatigued that it pulls us yeah. right out of the present uh, with the person who's actually in front of us yeah right and i i have to hold on to a fundamental trust in my heart that there is a God who is involved in the middle of all this mess, who is good, who is for every human being, mm -hmm. and that I get to participate in that. And the way that I get to do it is to be present and respond to the person who is in front of me, even if they're on a screen, you know, even if they're in a phone call, even if whatever, and, and, and allow that there is a is a love and a kindness that is furious against wrong of which we get to participate in as well. But the intent of that fury is to destroy all of those things which inhibit us being fully human and fully alive. Paul, before we wrap up, is there anything you haven't had a chance to say that you'd like to say? Oh my gosh. <sighs> Don't make a judgment without hearing the story. I have a friend on death row. I got a bunch of friends on death row in Tennessee. Terry King is one of them, been on death row now 35 years. He's just waiting for his execution date. One of the freest men I've ever met. Been on death row since he was 18 years old. I got a bunch of friends there. These guys, there's like 50 some of them and, and they have a woodworking shop. They built me a little clock that sits up here in the shape of the shack. Hmm. Sent it to me for Christmas. But they built a table of reconciliation in their woodworking shop. Sits about 12 guys. They have an agreement on death row that if two of them, if any two of them have an issue with each other, they will go sit in the library at the table of reconciliation wow. until it's dealt with. When you meet with them, you sit around the table of reconciliation. Abu, who um, we all don't think he is actually guilty. He, he had a disassociative issue and uh, he's been on de death row for years he actually was just commuted to life because and i think hopefully they'll actually begin to look at his case at some point he's about 70 years old and we all sit around this table and he 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 became um uh, a member of the islamic community when he went into prison because that's the brotherhood who found him and helped help put him back together and then through the quran he became a follower of jesus and uh, last time I was with a group of them, it was about 12 of us. And, and these guys, when they pray, they pray, they pray for real. Like there's no trying to please God or impress God with words or, you know, try to present a facade. I mean, it's just real stuff. And then Abu sings Amazing Grace and it just like, pfft. I'm talking to Terry the first time I meet him. And uh, I got, I was, I was invited because I wrote this little book called The Shack, you know, and it's ripping through prisons and 
death row and all this. And, and uh, we're sitting in this, I don't know, 12 by 12 room. Uh, and, and Ron is there, who's been on death row 30 years at the time, Terry 33 at the time. And, and uh, really, really a different environment. I mean, a guard comes walking by and Terry yells, George, George, come here, come here, come here. This is the guy that wrote the shack. George goes, hi, gives me a big hug. And Terry gives him a hug. And then he's I'm going like, this is death row, right? So, I mean, it's just like, come on, let's humanize people, hear the story. So Terry's sitting next to me and he would reach over once in a while and start to cry. And he says, uh, I can't believe you're here. He said, you have no idea how your book changed my life. Hmm. Can I tell you why? I'm like, yeah. You know, part of the beauty is when you're involved in creative stuff, you know, people get, it, people get stuff out of your participation that you never meant. <laughs> it's just one of those great things that happens along the way. And I feel very much like a third party about lots of the ripple effects of the shack. And um, so he says, here's, he says, your, your book absolutely changed my entire world. And here's how. It was the cave scene. Mm-hmm. And in, in, in the book and in the movie, there's a scene where the wisdom of God confronts Mackenzie, the main character. Mackenzie's the one who has a loss. He's, he's lost, greatest loss a human being can experience, the loss between a parent and a child. And in this scene, Mackenzie is invited to sit on the seat of judgment. Mm-hmm. He thinks he's going there to be judged by God. That's his mental, that's where he came from. He, you know, he's got some kind of conservative, modern evangelical background. And um, I'm Mackenzie, so it totally makes sense. And um, so, but Sophia, he thinks he's there to be judged. And Sophia, the wisdom of God says, no, no, you're here to be the judge. He says, I don't know how to judge. She says, are you kidding? You've done it most of your life. And, uh, and so finally, he, he sits on the seat of judgment. And then he, he begins to be authentic. And he begins to judge all the people who've heard him, and he begins to also judge God who didn't show up and fix things, right? And all this stuff begins to spew out of him. And Terry says to me, I'm reading that chapter in my cell. And he says, look, you have to understand, I've never denied what I did. I was 18 years old, and I shot and killed a young man. I was hot, yeah, high, but it doesn't matter. I, I own what I, no, I, conf- I always acknowledged what I had done, but I had never owned it. Hmm. And I, and here he says, and I didn't know why I didn't even realize that I hadn't owned it until I was reading that chapter because suddenly I realize that I am still sitting on the seat of judgment. Hmm. At least I'm better than the pedophiles on death row. And because I sat in the seat judging someone else, it meant I didn't have to face what I had done. And he said, suddenly, I am overwhelmed by the fact that I had hurt and, and actually put to death someone who was of such infinite beauty, and value and worth a child of God. And I did that. And he said, the conviction was so heavy on me. I'm literally crawling on the floor of my cell because I feel like my skin is being burned off and my clothes are burning off. 
And he said, it changed me. Hmm. And, um, and I know because Terry, Terry now tries to find people outside the prison system who will come visit the pedophiles on death row because some of them have never had a visitor in decades. And it's just like, ah, if we would just get off the seat of judgment, you know, it's not that we don't talk through and acknowledge the losses because there's plenty of them, but we need to hear the stories, you know, and um, I guess that's, that's the other thing that I would say. It's, I want us to all be fully human and fully alive. Yeah. And the only way I know how to participate in that is responding to who's actually in front of me today. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Two-way street. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, Kari. My friend. You're I, welcome. I'm very fond of you. Ah, and I you. Give Kim a big hug for us. I will. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Everybody, this has been the uh, Pilgrim Lost podcast. Kari, so good to be with you as always. Thanks, y'all, for getting lost with us. So with Paul. Hugs. Thank you for walking with us. To stay connected, visit us at pilgrimlost.com. Please comment, share, and respond.